All right, so here we go. King David is on the throne. If you remember the Old Testament, you know, Saul was the first king of Israel, then came David. All right. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baha in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name. They couldn't speak the name of God. They didn't speak the name of God. In fact, uh, if, it were, if we were Jewish, we would spell God G-D and never pronounce it. Okay? So, anyway, David's going to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called <clears throat> Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And that's uh, enough of that one. Okay? This is the word of the Lord, and uh, we rejoice in it. Now, how about we agree at the outset that this is a difficult biblical story. Difficult, that is, for we moderns to get our minds around. This story is odd. And it's mysterious. And maybe even dangerous. This story stretches our thinking, especially, I think, it stretches our thinking about God. We're, we're not sure we like this story. Not sure we like what this story may say about God. Indeed, at first reading, we're not even all that sure what it says about God. So what I'd like to do this morning is take a closer look at the story and see if maybe I can help you after having tried to help myself. Get your minds around this story and encounter the awesome 
perhaps even dangerous God of this story. Okay, at the center of this episode is a religious artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. You know, that's the thing that Han Solo eventually found when he came back as Indiana Jones. I mean, that's Han Solo, right? We all agree. You remember this, right? Well, here's the deal. The Ark was originally built by Moses under orders from God. The Ark, it was a simple wooden box, approximately four feet long by two feet wide and two feet deep. So not exactly a very big box. There were several rings on the side of the box through which poles could be placed so that the ark could be carried by the priests. Okay? Now, in the ark, Moses placed the two tablets of stone upon which the finger of God had written the Ten Commandments. At a later time, the ark was overlaid with gold and a thick slab of gold became its cover, became its lid. The lid of the ark was called the seat of mercy. And God was thought to sit on or perhaps to hover over that golden lid and to rule Israel from that position. At each end of the lid was a hammered gold figure that looked part human, part lion, and part eagle. With wings outstretched, those represented the heavenly creatures known as the cherubim, upon whom, the the backs of whom, God might ride through the skies. Here's the deal. These Old Testament folks, these Israelites, thought of the ark as the throne of God, thought of the ark as the very presence of the Holy One whose name no person ever dared to speak. You, You might even say that the ark had personality, that it had God's personality, or at least somehow, some way, it was an extension of God's personality. Now, there are a couple of other Bible stories about the ark that help us to understand or make everything even a bit more weird. Let's look at them. For instance, There was this time when the children of Israel were about to cross the Jordan River and begin the conquest of the Promised Land. Moses had died, and Joshua was now their leader. And it was that time of the year, the story tells us, that time of the year when the banks of the Jordan River were at flood stage. There was no human way for this nation of people to cross that river, sort of like when they stood before the Red Sea a generation earlier when Moses was their leader and Pharaoh's armies were at their back, remember? So Joshua ordered the priests of Israel to bring forward the Ark of the Covenant. The priests were to go before the army and before the people carrying the ark. In fact, out of respect for the ark, out of respect for the presence of God in their midst, everyone was ordered to stay back 3,000 feet. It's 
the distance is the equivalent of 10 football fields, if you're wondering, not quite two-thirds of a mile. And the Bible says this, that as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then Joshua ordered that 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that 12 stones be taken from the river's bottom right where the priest stood with the ark, and those stones were then to be placed at the very spot where the priest and the ark had first entered the water. And with that done, Joshua ordered the priest to come out of the river. And the Bible says, look at it, and the priest came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. Later, Joshua pointed at the 12 stones on the other side of the river now and said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do those stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. <clears throat> it was an awesome deed done by an awesome God. And the Ark of the Covenant was at the center of the story. Here's the deal. The Ark represented the presence, the personality, and the power of God in the midst of his people. When Joshua and the people showed reverence and respect for the ark, they showed reverence and respect for God. Got that? They feared the Lord. Well, on another occasion, many years later, and this is a really fun story, so listen up. You know, many years later, the Philistines, fierce enemies of the Israelites, remember Goliath? David, Goliath was a Philistine, all right? Well, the, Israel, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God in a battle, in war, and they took it to one of their temples in a city called Ashdod, and they sent, set the Ark, the Ark of God, they set it beside an image of their god, Dagon. Dagon was an idol, Half fish, half man. Get the picture? Here's the picture. The Ark of God and Dagon side by side. The next morning they awakened, went to the temple, the temple of Dagon, and look at this with me. There was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground, which is the traditional posture of worship and surrender. 
prostrate, face down on the ground, sort of like Goliath in front of David, by the way. There was Dagon, falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. So, the people of Ashdod went to their Philistine rulers and said, this ark of the God of Israel is nothing but trouble. It's dangerous. What shall we do with it? Well, the Philistine rulers figured all this trouble is just a coincidence. It really doesn't have anything to do with the presence of the ark. So they ordered the ark removed from the city of Ashdod to the city of Gath, another of the prominent cities of Philistia. Says the Bible, look at this. But after they had moved it, moved it to Gath, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it in great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another prominent city in Philistia, from Ashdod, get it, to Gath, now to Ekron. Well... According to the story, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of that city stood at the gates and said, we don't want it here. That thing is nothing but trouble. It's dangerous. Get it out of here. Send it back to Israel where it belongs. You see, the Philistines had finally gotten the message. This message. Mess with the ark of the covenant... And you're messing with an awesome God. And you don't want to mess with this God. He's dangerous. So they devised this elaborate scheme. And if we had time, we could get into it. And it would be fun. But you'll have to read this on your own. All right? But they devised this elaborate scheme to return the ark back to Israel. And they sent it back with a whole bunch of gold objects that had been forged into the form of tumors, by the way. They sent all this gold as offerings back to Israel as offerings to appease the God of Israel. Stay with me now. Hang on to your chairs. As things are about to get really interesting and curious, the scene shifts to the Israelite village of Beth Shemesh, which is located just across the border from Philistia. The ark has been returned to Israelites, to Israel, to great rejoicing among the people of the village of Beth Shemesh. The ark of God is back. God is back. But the ark of God is no sooner back in Israel than it demonstrates its awesome and mysterious power once again. It's what the story says. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. They took off the lid, looked in, 
and died. And you're wondering where that final scene in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark comes from. Right here. They open the lid, look in, and they die. And we are stunned. We don't get it. What's going on here? Now, friends, remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. Therefore, the Ark was to be treated with honor and respect and reverence. Accordingly, only the high priest was allowed to open the box and look in. One man. And only on one day each year on the Day of Atonement and only after going through an elaborate ritual of cleansing and purification. The 70 men of Beth Shemesh showed no such respect for the ark, no respect for things holy, no respect for a holy God, and they were judged, says the Bible. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? What are we going to do with it now? They're asking the same question as the Philistines. What are we going to do with this thing? This thing's too dangerous to keep around. So... The Israelites, stay with the story, they shipped it off to the house of Abinadab and appointed one of his sons to guard the ark of the Lord. Bottom line, they put the ark of God in storage. They put it aside. They put aside that which represented the presence, personality, and power of God in their midst. It was too dangerous to have around, so they put it aside. That, I submit to you, is what folks are always tempted to do with a dangerous God. They put that God in storage. They put that God aside. They forget about that God. Okay, fast forward 20 years to the story that is before us this morning. David is now the king of Israel. David has consolidated his power and he's established his throne in the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem... Jerusalem is now the royal city. And David, this man after God's own heart, longs for Jerusalem to be the holy city as well. Not just the king's city, but also God's city. Not just David's city, but also the Lord's city. And David remembers the Ark of the Covenant. He remembers the stories of the Ark, probably told to him by his grandfather Obed and his father Jesse, he understands that the Ark of God is both a national treasure and a national symbol, sort of like a sacrament, I suppose, a visible sign of the presence of God in the midst of God's people. So David chooses 30,000 men to accompany him on a pilgrimage to the house of Abinadab to recover the Ark of God and bring it to Jerusalem. 30,000 men. Lots of men. That's David's, that's David's way of showing lots of respect. The Ark is loaded on a brand new cart, which is pulled by oxen. Two of the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah 
and Aio guide the cart. Uzzah walked beside the ark. Aio marched in front, probably leading the oxen. David and the 30,000 walked behind them. David likely in front, right behind the ark. They're singing and playing their instruments and praising God with all their might, all on their way up to Jerusalem. Just then, something happened. The oxen stepped into a rut in the road and stumbled. The ark becomes unsteady, began to fall. Uzzah didn't even think about what he was doing. He puts out his hand to stabilize that precious cargo, realizes he has touched that which only a priest is allowed to touch, and Uzzah falls dead to the ground. Probably a shock. The procession, the celebration stop. David, staring down at the dead body of Uzzah, is both angry with God, says the story, and he's afraid. To say that no, no one other than the priests are to touch the Ark of the Covenant, well, that's one thing. But carrying it this far, that's frightening to David. And... Frightening to us as well, perhaps, folks. <clears throat> you see, whether we like it or not, this, I think, is the point of these stories. This is what the storyteller wants us to see. This is what the storyteller even wants us to feel, because storytellers are like that. They don't want you to just think something and see something. They want you to feel it. Are you ready for it? The presence of God in our midst is never to be taken lightly. That is the simple yet powerful point, I think, of this story. And this story, we say, is the word of God. God is not to be taken lightly, says the story. God is not someone to trifle with, says the story. God is not someone to trivialize, says the story. God is not someone to treat with an unholy familiarity as if God were merely the man upstairs or the big guy in the sky. No, God is not a merely big man. God is wholly different from man. Therefore, God is to be treated with deep reverence and great respect. That's what it means to fear God. God is to be honored. God is to be revered. God is holy. God is God. And there's none like God. The presence of God in our midst is never to be taken lightly. How dare, for instance, how dare we think we can set this God alongside all other gods and interests and activities, our Dagons, as if any of them were God's equal. God is not present in our midst to be gawked at curiously or to be poked, prodded, and dissected like some theological cadaver. God is not present in our midst merely to use when and where and if we see fit. Truth be told, God will not be used. God will not be manipulated. God will not be controlled. God will not be domesticated. God will not be ignored. God will be God. And that means God will always and everywhere be dangerous. One of, the, one of the books uh, on this subject that I 
that I found, I've read many, many years ago now. Uh, it was written by a fellow by the name of Donald W. McCullough. And uh, the, book's, uh, the book's title is The Trivialization of God. And it's got this subtitle, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. Writes McCullough in the opening paragraphs of chapter one. Listen to this. He says, visit a church on Sunday morning. Almost any will do. You will likely find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity, a God, who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions or who lends almighty support to certain social crusades or who conforms to individual spiritual experiences, but you will not likely find much awe or sense of mystery. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher, unsure whether the sermon will go over. I can relate to that. The only shaking knees will be those of the soloists about to sing the offertory. We don't do solos anymore, so the shaking knees have to belong to Emily probably because Aaron's in the band. Anyway. <laughs> Says McCullough, the New Testament warns us, offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. And then he says, but reverence and awe have often been replaced by a yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heat, no blinding light, no power for purification. When the true story gets told, whether in the partial light of historical perspective or the perfect light of eternity, it may well be revealed that the worst sin of the church at the end of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 21st, was the trivialization of God. And then McCullough goes on to quote Annie Dillard, who asks this question. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Let's be clear on one thing. I am not calling you brainless tourists. Annie Dillard calls you brainless tourists. Blame her. But this is what Dillard says. You'll get her point. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside the Roman catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we call upon the name of the Lord? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Says Dillard, the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Here's McCullough's point, all right? It's that many in the church today and most who stand outside of the church seem to prefer what he calls the illusion of a safer deity. So we have pared God down to more manageable proportions. In other words, I'd say it this way. Instead of humbly bowing before a God in whose image we are created, we seek all too often to create God, to recreate him <coughs> in images that work for us. A few chapters later, McCullough describes a very familiar 
and poignant scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that children's story written by Lewis so many years ago. Some of you will no doubt recognize this scene. It's a powerful scene. Several children, you know, have entered the imaginary land of Narnia, and they hear for the first time about Aslan, the lion. Aslan, you must remember, is the Christ figure in Lewis's story. So here's the scene. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan's is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd, I'd thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and... No mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And he's good. David, King David, concluding that the Ark of the Covenant was not safe, the Ark representing the presence of God was not safe, set it aside in the home of Obed-Edom, put it back in storage. The Ark remained there for three months, and then surprise, says the story, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. So David cautiously retraces his steps, retrieves the ark of God once more, and brings it to Jerusalem with great rejoicing. Hear this, friends, and hear it well. Like the ark and like Aslan, God is most certainly not safe. This final quote from Donald McCullough. To appear before the holy other... God, with steady knees, well, it would be foolhardy to say the least. In the presence of this one, human indifference gets slapped to alert attention. Human pretension gets knocked on its backside. One may appear before other gods with confidence, with no sense of being threatened. They will stay put. They don't stray from places assigned to them by human egos desperately trying to maintain control. But the God revealed in Jesus Christ is holy. And a holy God cannot be contained or tamed. This sort of God is holy other. And then he finishes with these words. God is not safe, but God is good. Very, very good. And I'm just inviting you this morning to just reflect on that. God is not safe. There's danger to God. But he's good. He's very, very good. In fact, I'm even thinking, and I know some of you are not going to want to hear this, but I'm even thinking that perhaps Renew Community should consider repainting the wall over here. I know we just did this. But what if we were to repaint the wall over here a, 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 a bright yellow 
sort of as a reminder that God is dangerous. And then we might paint the wall over there and even purer and glossier white as a reminder that God is good. So very good. Because I think that's the balanced understanding of the character and nature of God in which we as God's people, God's beloved, are called to be. There's a tension to live in the middle of that. There's, there's, there's a tension here to say that God is not safe in the sense that we can't manage him, we can't control him, but he is good, so very, very good. So these final words, caution. You are in the presence of God. Caution. Here and everywhere, we are in the presence of God. Caution now and always, we are in the presence of God. God is not safe, but God is so very, very good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, think on these things. Amen. Pray with me.